copy, feel free to raise your hand and one of the fellows will get that to you. We've been, for those of you who don't know, we've been in a verse-by-verse study of the book of 2 Thessalonians. We made our way through the book of 1 Thessalonians over the course of about 35 weeks or so, and then we ended up diving in then to the book of 2 Thessalonians. And and last week, we got into some of the details that are surrounding the the second coming. It it, It was... it was specifically about the vengeance of God at the second coming. And so, man, it was a message that wasn't the easiest to preach and probably wasn't the easiest to, to listen to either, but it, but it, was, it was needful. And, and, and we talked about how Jesus is coming back, and, he, and he's coming back in flaming fire, taking vengeance upon those that refuse to believe the gospel. And, and, and he's coming back to punish them. But we also saw that, the, that our passage teaches us in chapter 1 that when he's coming back, he's also coming back so that those of us that do believe, so that we can lift up his name, so that we can glorify and, and admire him at his coming. And, and so there, there's, there's two sides of this whole deal. There's two sides of this return based on if you've ever believed and if you've ever called on the name of Jesus to save you. And in this passage in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, what God did as he inspired Paul, Silas, and Timothy to write this book is he clears off some space for us after laying this whole deal out about God's vengeance. And he he clears off some space to teach us what that information about the second coming should actually do in our lives. Listen, God just didn't give us this information uh, about the second coming and, and his vengeance and all of these things so that we could scratch some sort of intellectual itch that we have about the end times. He didn't do that any time that he references the second coming in any of the places in the Bible that he does it. It's, it's always for a purpose. He, he gives us that information for a reason. There's a way that he wants us to respond to, the under, to an understanding of that information. And so this morning, I want us to begin by looking at, number one, the proper response to the severity of the second coming. The proper response to the severity of the second coming. God gives us these details about his second coming, and in, 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 in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 1, it says, Jesus is, is going to come in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those that don't know God and don't obey the gospel. And that vengeance and punishment is described as being everlasting destruction. And and, and we're given those details with the hope that that information is going to change something in our lives. And we know that because Paul, Silas, and Timothy immediately pray that there are some specific things that would become a reality in the lives of the Thessalonians in response to what they've been just taught about the second coming. And here's what they say in 2 Thessalonians 111, where we're going to pick up this morning. Here, here's how that prayer looks. It says, wherefore also we pray always for you. Or, or in other words, wherefore or because of all the truths that I just got done telling you about the second coming and in light of the reality and the severity of it, because of those truths, we're praying that it will cause these things to be true in your life. And here's what they are that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. Okay, so because of all the truths we've learned about the reality and the severity of the second coming, it should cause us 
to live a life God counts worthy of our calling. It should cause us to live a life God counts worthy of our calling. In, in the same way that God accounts for unbelievers, and there's, there's a day of recompense coming for those that don't believe, God is also counting something with believers. He's counting to see and accounting to see if they're worthy. In, in verse 11 says that, that our God would count you worthy of this calling. What's this calling? It's the calling from the previous verse in verse 10 that we saw last week. It's that we're a group of people that instead of facing God's vengeance and, and wrath and the punishment of God, we'll be the ones glorifying and admiring God, the God that, that saved us. I mean, man, that is a, a privilege and a calling it's, it's really tough to even get our minds around. We've got to work at it. If it wasn't for God's grace, though, we could be on the other side of that thing. But instead of being punished like we deserve, we'll be there worshiping the God that saved us. And this, is ver this verse is saying we ought to live lives that are worthy of that privilege. And, and, in, and in one sense, of course, we're completely unworthy to merit our own salvation, right? We understand that. We, we couldn't be worthy enough to merit our own salvation. So Jesus had to step in because we couldn't be good enough or worthy enough before a holy God. So we can never be counted worthy of salvation on our, on our own apart from Jesus' work on the cross. But this passage teaches us that, that though we couldn't be worthy enough to be saved, after our salvation, based on God's criteria moving forward, God is going to either count us worthy or unworthy of what we've been given. It, it, that doesn't have anything to do with whether or not we make it to heaven, but simply whether or not God counts us worthy once we're there. You see, we believe in the doctrine of eternal security, or, or once saved, always saved, it's sometimes called. But you know, sometimes people take eternal security maybe even a little bit further than the Bible does. Now, again, let me just mention, if you've ever been truly saved in your life at any point, you are eternally secure, you are sealed, and you cannot lose your salvation. When you're born again, it's like your physical birth. Listen, there's nothing you can do to make you unborn. You were always born. Once you're born, there's nothing that can change the fact that that happened. You can die. It doesn't change the fact that you were born. But we need to understand that the eternal security of the believer do, does not mean the eternal equality of the believer. Just because we're eternally secure, we shouldn't believe that there's just a lot of things that are optional now. I'm going to heaven anyway, and Jesus is going to forgive me. That perspective, my goodness, it's, that's a, it's appalling. It's appalling to God. But we need to realize that's how we live on this earth, that the way that we live on this earth has a definite impact in eternity. No, not your eternal destiny, but your eternity. But, but, but some of us, listen, we got our get out of hell free card, and then we sat down and we figured out what we wanted to do with our lives next. All right, now that I got things settled in the next life, let's see what I can milk out of this one. And some of us hear that and we think, okay, cool, well, that one doesn't apply to me and we think that's not our perspective when we hear that because we think it only applies to people who are living in what we would consider to be objective sin. 
We think it's the people that are partying and unfaithful to their spouse and, and doing shady business deals to get ahead. But I want to make sure that we all understand that it's also the people that get saved and the focus of their life is the money they can make and the vacations they can go on and the houses they can buy and the fun they can have and the entertainment they can have. And they approach salvation like it's the end instead of the beginning. And we quote Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And well, we should quote that verse. But somehow we forget the next verse that's tied right on in there. Just keep reading. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. And we approach those good works as optional. Listen, the reason you were saved was for you to start doing good works in your life. We're his workmanship and we're created in Christ and and, and now we're new creatures in him. And God ordained and, and he purposed that all of those that become new creatures would be defined by good works. And sometimes it's almost like we think we're going to get to heaven and God's going to be like, ah, no big deal. I, I didn't really mean that anyway. Just come on. Yeah, it's all good. Right. Maybe sometimes we've gotten so turned off by legalism that we've gone too far the other way. And it's like, whoa, whoa, wrangle it in. Let's 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 bring it back a little bit. <laughs> the legalism was wrong, but now we're too far the other way. We were still created unto good works, and now we're new creatures. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, it's one of the places where we find that phrase, new creature. And, it, and, and here's what it says. It says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And again, this is usually the place that we stop. But the next verse says, And all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Listen, that's wonderful. Now we're new creatures in Christ. What an unbelievable thing. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. But he he didn't just reconcile us to himself. He reconciled us to himself and he gave us something that we ought to be doing. He gave us a ministry. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation, not the ministry of simply coming to church, though God wants that. But but he didn't save you just to attend church. He saved you unto good works. And one of the key good works that God has for each and every one of us in our lives is the ministry of reconciliation. And it's unbelievable the amount of people that have tucked verse 17 into their pocket And they claim that truth for their life, but they've gone on to ignore the responsibility of verse 18. We're so thankful that God gave us that salvation in 17 and we celebrate it. Well, we should. But how can we claim salvation in verse 17 and ignore what he also gave us in verse 18? Look at Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. It says, it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done. Can't forget that. But according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And we're so grateful for the truths of those three verses 
but we just can't forget about verse 8. This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. Verse 5, we were saved by God's mercy, not of works of our own righteousness. Verse 8, I'm going to constantly be telling you to be careful to maintain good works. (laughs) No works didn't save you, but now that you're saved, act like it. Salvation is a stewardship. We must live a life that God counts worthy. This is, now that I gave you salvation, live a life worthy of what I gave you. Philippians 2.12, it tells us to work out our own salvation. In other words, since he's given you salvation, you have a stewardship now to put that thing to work. And over and over again in the Bible that we... We see that works don't save us, but now that we're saved, we've been called to work, to be counted worthy of the eternity that we've been given. And man, it is a sobering thought, wouldn't you say, the thought of getting, getting to heaven. We're there, right? It's amazing. But in God's eyes, he knows and we know that he doesn't count us worthy to be there. I mean, in our passage this morning, Paul, Silas, and Timothy are clearly telling us they're praying for this Thessalonian church that they'll be counted worthy, which means the other side of that coin is true, too. Some of us won't be counted worthy once we get there. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine getting to heaven, looking God face to face, and he sees you as someone that pocketed the gift of salvation and then went on your merry Oh, man, it gives me a pit in my stomach just thinking about that. And you want to you know a surefire way to get in front of God and not be counted worthy of the eternity that he has given you? Matthew 10, 37 through 39, it gives us some specific details about this that are very interesting. Here's what he says. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and and, and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life... Wow, that's a tongue twister. Seashells, seashells by the seashore. He He that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. Listen, honoring our father and mother is one of the Ten Commandments. God couldn't take it much more serious. In fact, the penalty in the Old Testament for cursing your father and mother was death. So that gives you at least a little bit of an idea of of how God feels about it. So God takes that very seriously. But he says in the midst of that, you need to understand that if you love them more than me, I won't count you worthy once we get to heaven. You need to honor them and love them, but that shouldn't compare to the way that you love me. And I get it. Depending on the parents you had, that may be the easiest thing I give you this morning. That may be like, well, whoo, I'm off the hook on that one. You know, but, I, but, but in the second half of the verse, in verse 37, Jesus ups the ante for us a little bit. And he said, oh, another thing. If you love your kids more than me, you're not worthy of that may be a good gauge for where we're actually at with this whole thing. 
Jesus says, if you love your kids more than me, then you're not going to be counted worthy of me. So let me ask you, where does that leave you? I get it, man. There is nothing we wouldn't do for those kids. It is a love that's so strong and so different. It's just beyond belief and beyond comprehension. If one of my kids was faced with hell and I had the ability to take their place, I'm diving in. That's just the way it is. But Jesus says, listen, I want you to love them like that, and I'm all for that. But you should love me even more than that, or you won't be counted worthy of me and worthy of what I gave you. Who do you think gave you those kids in the first place? They're God's kids. He just lets us raise them. What a blessing. He's their heavenly father, and he's entrusted us with the joy and the responsibility to be their earthly parents. We're not to love the creation more than the creator. We're not to to love the gift more than the giver. I get it. Most people do, but you won't be able to do it and be counted worthy. And what you have to understand is, as it relates to parenting, loving God more than your kids is actually what's going to cause you to love your kids the way you should and be the parents that you should. In verse 38 says, if you don't take up your cross and follow Jesus, you won't be counted worthy either. In other words, if we don't move forward after salvation and live a life of dying to our flesh daily, then we're not going to be counted worthy of the eternity that we're receiving. The way it works is Jesus died our death on the cross so that we could live. And now Jesus is saying, now I want you to take up your cross and die so that I can live through you. Ephesians 4 verses 1 through 3 also gets very specific for us on this thing when you just trace it through the Bible in in regards to being counted worthy. And here's what it says. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called with all lowliness and meekness, with long sufferings, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. You want to walk worthy and you want to be counted worthy? Here are some specific ways that you should be behaving if you want to fit that bill. And it's a lot of the stuff that we've been covering over the past few months because it keeps coming up in First and Second Thessalonians. And it has to do with the way we treat and relate to each other. He says, here's what it's going to look like for those that will be counted worthy. You're going to treat each other with lowliness and meekness and long-suffering, forbearing one another. Forbearing means enduring one another it means even suffering for one another forbearing one another and we do that in love and we work like crazy for there to be unity and peace in this place that's what it looks like in the life of someone that's going to get to the end of their life and stand before god and will be counted worthy of what they've been given colossians chapter 1 and verse 9 spells it out for us like this it says For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Here it is. That you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. And here's what walking worthy and being counted worthy looks like in God's eyes. Being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness given thanks to the father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints and light are you getting the idea 
Listen, there's coming a day when we're going to stand before the one that bought us and the one that saved us, and he's either going to count us worthy or he's going to count us unworthy. If you were to die right now, if you're saved, you'd be in heaven. But if you were to die right now, would he, would he count you worthy or, or do you have some work to do? And man, I hope that means something to you now because rest assured, it's going to mean everything to you later. Because you remember how it works in eternity? When we, when we got saved, we all became a builder. Some of you guys aren't very good with your hands, but when you got saved, you became a builder. And in 1 Corinthians 3.10 says, that's what 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15 tells us. That's what it tells us. And in verse 11, it says that Jesus is the foundation of what we're building, right? That's how it works. And verse 12 says that we believers are building something on top of the foundation that is Jesus Christ. And we're either building on the foundation gold, silver, and precious stones or wood, hay, and stubble. Verse 13 says it's going to be very clear which one it was and what our work on earth was because God's going to light it with fire and it's going to reveal what it was. Because gold, silver, and precious stone react a lot differently than wood, hay, and stubble when you hit them with fire. That wood, hay, and stubble is going to turn to ash. And verse 14 says, what's left after that fire tries our works will be our reward. In, in, in the way I believe, in, in verse, no, excuse me, in verse 15 also, verse 15 clarifies that, that if our work burns up, we'll be saved from hell, but that we will suffer loss. And the way I believe it's going to shake out is this. The reward that is left over after God lights it with fire is representative of our capacity to enjoy heaven and to worship the Lord in heaven. And so we do it for the purpose of pleasing the Lord and, and because he's worthy, but it's also directly connected to the experience that we're going to have in heaven. Now, listen, I, I, I've covered a, a decent bit of ground to give us an idea of what our lives are going to need to look like to be counted worthy when we get to heaven. But before we move on, I, I got to remind us of something that we talked about a couple weeks or so ago. You remember what we saw in verse 5 of 2 Thessalonians 1? We saw that there are things that God allows in our lives so that we can be counted worthy of the kingdom when the time comes. Do you remember what those things were? It's adversity in our lives. It's trials and it's tribulations and it's persecutions. God allows those things in our lives, it says, so that we'll be counted worthy of the kingdom. And I get it. It's like, good grief. Why does it have to take suffering? Does God want, want to watch us suffer? What's the deal? No, it, it's not that. Look at 1 Peter 4.1. Here's what it's about. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his, his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. Listen, do you see that? You know what's happening to us in the midst of suffering, according to these verses? There's something about suffering in our flesh that makes sin even more disgusting in our sight. There's something about suffering in our flesh physically that makes us want to die to our flesh spiritually 
You know how when you feel like trash, the last thing on your mind is some of the carnal things that may be on your mind when you feel good? You just want to get out of this dirty flesh. Like, oh, my goodness, this disgusts me. That's what it's like. The wor- the, that's the work God's doing in your life through suffering. So that instead of living to the flesh, you'll live to the will of God so that at the end of your life you can be counted worthy. Not everyone's going to be counted worthy. So like I said when we began this morning, the, the eternal security of the believer does not mean the eternal equality of the believer. And I really want us to evaluate this morning as we consider the reality and the gravity of the second coming. I want us to evaluate whether or not that, we're go- that we can- will be counted worthy when the time comes. Whether or not right now the life we're living, where it stands, are we going to stand before God and he says, you're worthy of the salvation that I gave you. So that's one of the things that Paul, Silas, and Timothy were praying for would be the reality of this Thessalonian church. But there's something else that they were praying for as well. And it was for them to fulfill all the good pleasure of God's goodness. They also were praying specifically for this. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 11 says, Wherefore also we pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling, which we just saw, and here it is, and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness. In other words, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, listen, they were praying for God's purposes to be fulfilled in the lives of the Thessalonians. Now make sure you're hearing that. He was praying for God's purposes to be fulfilled. And and in light of the persecutions that we've already covered multiple times that the Thessalonian church was being subjected to, and in light of the fact that it wasn't as if their persecution was just simply people saying some mean and hurtful things to them, but that they were literally coming for them to harm them and potentially kill them. In light of all of those things that we're very well aware of that was going on in the Thessalonian church, I really want you to think for a second with me as to what is always noticeably in this passage as well. What is noticeably absent from these prayers that you might expect would be in these prayers? I'll ask it to you this way. What would you be praying for if people were coming after you to inflict pain upon you? I think it would probably be something along the lines of, oh God, we're just begging you to remove the persecutions that are in our lives, God. We know you can do it. We're begging you. Would you take this from us? Does that sound about right? But that's not what they're praying for, and it's not what they ever pray for. Paul, Silas, and Timothy are praying that God's purposes would be fulfilled in the lives of the Thessalonians for his pleasure, not that their problems would go away. Listen, their problems were the things that God was using to bring them to the place of being counted worthy. And so if God had allowed that in their life to be counted worthy, then your prayers become that God's purposes would be served in the midst of the adversity. And listen, man, I get it. That sounds really tough. I get it and I agree. And before I say what I'm going to say next, let me preface it with, there's never, ever been a problem you've ever had in your life that your Father in Heaven did not want to hear about. Hebrews 4.15 says, 
There has never been a problem you've ever had that he was not touched with the way that you were feeling in that moment. And he lived that human experience. So he truly understands what we're going through. It's not like he can't relate. And he cares very much about what we're going through. He knows what it's like. He lived the human experience like us, except he did it all without sin. And verse 16 says, he invites us to come to him for help. Thank goodness. Peter says something similar in 1 Peter 5, 7. He says, casting all your care upon him for for he careth for you. Isn't that incredible? God invites us to bring it to him because he truly cares. And I know that a lot of you are familiar with those verses, and I know that it kind of gives us some warm fuzzies when we're in the thick of it. But I get it. It's hard to hold on to the truths when you're right in the middle of it. Because here's how it works. We come before God in prayer and we thank him for the truths of that verse, right? We, we thank him that he's touched when we hurt. And we thank him that we can cast our cares upon him and that he cares for us. But then the prayer ends and we open up our eyes and the problems are all still there. You still don't have a job. You still don't have any money. Your kids are still in the hospital. You still have people that wronged you and don't care when you open your eyes. And so we have this understanding that God cares about our plight, but we continue to carry the weight of the problem because, well, somebody has to. And the problem is we come to God in prayer with the hope that God will take our problems away. We acknowledge that he's touched and he cares, but what we're really doing is is we're working our way over to him going and uh, let's go ahead and get rid of it too while we're at it. That's what we're really doing. And what we have to understand is God answers our prayers according to his purposes. And God views our lives outside of the time that we're currently living in. He, He views our lives outside of just these current moments of our lives. We might be broke at this moment. We might be in the hospital for this moment. We might not have a job for this moment. And people may be still be mistreating us in this moment. But if these brief moments of our lives can be used to count us worthy in the next life, then our Lord would much rather fulfill his purposes in our lives than remove a brief problem in our lives. His purposes are for us to grow and to be counted worthy. And so when we pray, we've got to make sure that we understand that prayer should be the place where we take everything before God, but we're submitting to his purposes. And you see, when we do that, then we can take the weight off and we can let go of the frustration and the despair and the anxiety that we're experiencing because we're making our petition made known unto him, but we're submitting to his purposes. We don't have to keep wearing. We, we just looked at Hebrews 4.16, and, and what did it say was the reason that we come boldly before the throne? It's to obtain mercy. And listen, maybe the way that God wants to show you mercy is by removing a particular problem or problems in your life. Maybe that's, maybe that's what he wants to do. Maybe the problems came into your life, and he taught you what he wanted to teach you, And now he wants to show you mercy and bring himself glory by taking that problem from you. And if so, man, praise the Lord, that's that's wonderful. But what if the most merciful thing that God could do is to not remove the problem? 
Are you okay with that too? Or maybe he's just not going to remove the problem right now. He's just he's going to remove it. Just not going to be as soon as we want him to remove it. But either way, what if God says, I know there are problems in your life and I'm going to be with you in the midst of it. and I'm going to show up with my grace through the difficulty. But I want that problem to stay in your life for right now. Second Corinthians chapter 12 and verse nine says. And he said unto me, my my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest on me. Listen, through the weakness that we feel in the midst of this adversity, God will strengthen us and he's going to show up with his grace. We have to accept his grace and listen, it will be sufficient. But remember what sufficient means. It will be enough. It won't always feel like we're swimming in it. It won't always feel like we're we're drowning. It will be sufficient to get us through whatever it is that we're facing, though. And so he says in the second half of the verse that he'd rather glory in his infirmities and problems and weakness because he knows God's power is going to have to show up then and God's power will be on his life. Philippians 4, 6 through 7 says, Be careful for nothing. Listen, in other words, don't be full of care and concerns for anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Now, do you see that? Were you paying attention when I was reading that? There's something in there that sticks out that seems like it shouldn't belong. How do you make your request made known unto God for the problems in your life and do it with thanksgiving? Right? That's a pretty good question. I mean, that's a pretty good question. Like, is that, is that a joke? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, that's how we take it. If you actually heard somebody pray like that, you'd think it was a joke. Thanksgiving's coming up, right? Here, here's, here's the scenario. Can you imagine the whole family? You're sitting around Thanksgiving table and... Everyone, hey, everyone, we're going to take a turn to to pray, each and every one of us. I want to go around the table, and we're all going to take turns praying. Of course, it's Thanksgiving, and so what we want to do in our prayer here is we're just going to give a prayer of of thanks for whatever you're thankful for, you know, and so you're you're sitting across from your cousin, and he starts going, you know, God, I'd really like to thank you a lot that I can't find a job right now. You know, you're sitting across, I'm like, you know, one eye opens like, what's good? You know, what's going on here? And, and God, I want to I want to thank you that I'm broke. And I really love to thank you for my girlfriend that dumped me last week. That was nice. And last but not least, God, I want to thank you for that c- concussion that I sustained last week at work when I fell off of that ladder. And at some point along the line, if someone was doing that, grandpa would eventually step in and say, all right, enough, smart guy. That's a, that'll, be a, that'll be enough, wise guy. But isn't that what God has asked us to do? And you know the only way that you can actually do it? We get our eyes off of the problem. And we put our eyes on God's purposes for the problem. 
and get our eyes on how he wants to use that problem in our lives and knowing that and focusing on that, we can actually give thanks. And then you know what happens then? Verse 7. The next verse says, here's what happens. The peace of God which passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And again, the thanksgiving doesn't come from the removal of the problems. No, we come to God with our problems, with thanksgiving, and his peace doesn't come from the confidence that we find in believing that he's going to remove the problem. You understand that? We come with our problems, with thanksgiving, and we're not thanking him in faith that he'll remove the problem, and then peace comes from that. No, it comes from the promise that he's going to be with us every step of the way, and he's going to keep our hearts and minds and give us peace. See, what we tend to do is, what we tend to do is take peace in the belief that God is going to do what we want him to do and remove our problems. But that'll never give us true peace because that's not a true promise. And his promise is that he'll be with us and that he'll keep our hearts and our minds no matter our circumstances if we approach him the way he's commanded us to approach him with thanksgiving. And this peace, it's a, it's a peace that's beyond human comprehension. It defies logic. You know why people struggle so bad when problems and adversity hit hard? The reason is, is because they thought that prayer was where we come to God to express our will for our circumstances. And then we express faith that God will do what we want him to do. And our faith is in the belief that God's going to do what I want him to do. I prayed and I named it and I claimed it. And so I got it. But listen, what if God's purposes for allowing the problems and adversity in your life haven't been completed yet? What if God still needs to do more in your life before he takes your problems away so that you might be counted worthy in eternity? But we get ourselves all messed up when we think that when when we put our faith in God doing what we want him to do, and then he doesn't do it because he wants to fulfill his purposes. And we don't understand. that, that we, we don't understand God, so we, we don't understand God, and, and, and we don't understand prayer, and, and, and so it makes it feel like he's not there for us. Listen, prayer is not where we come to bend God's will to ours. Prayer is where we come and God bends our will to his. You remember in Matthew chapter 26, verse 36, Jesus, he's in the garden of Gethsemane and and he's about to be betrayed and crucified. And three times Jesus prays and says, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But what's he follow it up with? Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou will. Even so, your will be done. Sometimes God doesn't want to remove it. He wants to keep it. And you see what Jesus did in that prayer? He he modeled everything that we've been talking about. He made his request made known to God, and he says, if there's any way your purposes can be fulfilled outside of this, would you please do it? But God, most of all, here's what I want. Most of all, though, I want your purposes to be served in my life. 
Listen, that's what Paul, Silas, and Timothy were praying would be the result of the Thessalonians understanding the reality and the severity of the second coming. The return of the Lord, it puts it all in perspective for us. So the prayer is that God's purposes would be fulfilled. And God wants it to do the same thing in our lives. Our lives should fulfill God's good pleasure, not our own. But there's one more thing that Paul, Silas, and Timothy pray for, for the Thessalonians that we need to see. They, they also pray that, that, that an understanding of the reality and severity of the second coming would cause them to perform a work of faith with power. They would cause them to perform a work of faith with power. The end of, the end of Second Thessalonians, uh, this, the, or the last, the end of the last verse in Second Thessalonians one, it says, "And the work of faith with power." Now, do you remember in First Thess- when we were in First Thessalonians and First Thessalonians one three? This group of people, this church, they had already been commended for just this. It says, remembering without ceasing your work of faith. So so this is something that had been characteristic of this church, a work of faith with power. Well, where, where, where did this power that they had, where did that come from exactly? Well, Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 says, power came on us when we were saved and we received the Holy Ghost. There was a power associated with that. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. The gospel is where the power is too. It's through the Holy Spirit and the gospel. Hebrews 4.12 says that the word of God is quick and powerful. Remember how Paul, Silas, and Timothy said something similar to this in, in, in 1 Thessalonians 1.5? It, it says that, For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost. You see, the, the, the gospel wasn't in word only, but listen, it was in word. Understand that. It just wasn't in word only. In other words, the gospel message was proclaimed in word, and alongside of that word came the power in the Holy Ghost. But, but, but let's, let, let's talk about the, the work of faith part in power. What, what, what's that? What is, what is that all about? Look at Philippians 3.10, and I think it'll give us some insight into that. It says, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Now, are you listening to that? So the power, it comes from the Holy Spirit, and it comes from the presenting of the gospel. And do you see where else the power is coming from? It's the power of the resurrection being lived out through our lives. But you know what you have to have in order to tap into the power of of the resurrection it's obvious and the verse says it it's going to take suffering and death and when we suffer and we die to self we then can experience the resurrection power of christ in our life and that's what paul silas and timothy are praying for when they're praying for a work of faith with power and that's what god wants from our lives 
So when God lays out for us in his book all these details surrounding the, the second coming and the punishment coming for those that believe and the benefits coming to those that do believe, it's all he's telling us all that for a purpose. And part of the purpose of it is so that it will cause us to accomplish the three things that we've just looked at. Live a life God counts worthy. Fulfill the good pleasure of God's goodness and perform a work of faith with power. Listen, when you see life through the lens of the Lord's return, everything else that we can see with our physical eyes is meaningless compared to these things. And God wants to accomplish all those things we just looked at. But there's a reason even for that. It's, it's for the reason that I want us to see next. It's for the purpose of a proper response to the severity of the second coming. The purpose we, we need to understand the purpose of having this response. You understand that? The, the last verse of 2 Thessalonians 1, it, it tells us the bigger purpose behind applying these three things that we've been looking at this morning, it tells us the bigger purpose for applying those, uh, applying those three things to our lives that we've been looking at all morning from verse 10. And here's the bigger purpose in verse 11. That the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you, and you in him, and ye in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so what we see is we're to glorify Jesus in us and for us to be glorified in him. To glorify Jesus in us and, to be and for us to be glorified in him. He's glorified through our lives and in turn, we're glorified in him. Listen. This whole thing right here, this is the theme of the Bible that you hear us push all the time. It's all about God's kingdom, and it's all about God's glory. It's about him getting the glory that he deserves in his kingdom. And I think most of us in this room, I think we actually, most of us would understand that intellectually. That's not commonly known that that's the theme of the Bible. I think most people in this room intellectually understand that, but our lives don't always convey that in practice. You see, for example, do you know why it is that we have such a tough time doing the things that we've talked about this morning? You know why it's so hard to submit to God's purposes in our lives and say, not my will, but yours be done, and how hard it is to muster those words out? Because in the final analysis, our lives are first and foremost about us. And we don't live like Revelation 4.11 is true. Where it says that we were created for his pleasure. We may know intellectually that, that life is all about God's glory and pleasure and we exist to glorify him. But in practice, our lives are all about our glory and pleasure, pleasure and God exists for us. It's similar to a lot of what we've already been seeing this morning. And it's as if we think God owes us happiness. Right? And, and listen, y'all. God doesn't owe us anything. The only thing he actually owed us is something that we don't want, and it's punishment and hell, and he saved us from that. Listen, we're not to pursue happiness, y'all. We're to pursue holiness for his happiness. 
All of life is about Jesus being glorified in us, and then in turn, we're glorified in him. And you know one of the ways that we're glorified in him? When he counts us worthy when we get to heaven. That's how that all comes full circle. We glorify him through our lives, and then he glorifies us, and he counts us worthy of what he gave us. Is that the desire of your heart this morning, to see him glorified, to see his purposes fulfilled in your life so that you can reach the end of your life and be counted worthy of the salvation you received? Man, would you ask God to change your heart this morning? Father, I I, I love you, and God, this is one of the more convicting messages that I think I've ever had to preach. I pray that I would apply everything that I just flapped my gums about. I pray, God, I'd apply it to my life, and I'm praying for this church body that that they would do the same, God. It, it goes, uh, these truths, they go against logic, but man's wisdom and your wisdom are two different things, God. I pray we would apply your wisdom and that we would have your perspective on our lives, that we'd have your perspective on the second coming. We would have your perspective on the trials and tribulations that come our way. And God, that you would, in the midst of those things, that you would be working your purposes in our lives. God, that's what we're praying for, for your purposes to be worked out. And I pray we would submit to you regardless of the circumstances, regardless of what that looks like in our lives. Would this be a group of people that submitted to you in those things? Father, we love you. In your name we pray.